This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and today I'm joined by Joel Revel. Joel is the CEO of Two Ocean Trust in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, a lovely place to be. So, Joel, thanks for joining me virtually here. Thank you. Great, great to be joining you. I've been uh, I've been hiding in the shade, and you've been hiding in the heater. So, <laughs> we're on opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> Summer has not arrived in Jackson. Hole. No. What is the nor- what do you what do you think is I don't mean like the calendar start to summer I mean like the actual locals start to summer in Jackson Hole late May mm, yeah I could see that yeah yeah we're in the we're in the shoulder season right now it is not the best time to be here no slushy yeah icy icy it goes back and forth between mud and snow <laughs> yeah <laughs> I always so I've I've lived in a few kind of cold places in the world and I always felt like in that as you say, shoulder season, even when it's not snowing, what you get is large piles of now just chunks of ice that during the daytime melt enough so that at nighttime it all freezes over and becomes like hockey rinks in yes. different places. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's our season right now. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> so how did you end up in Wyoming? Because I don't or in Jackson Hole, I should say. Yeah, I grew up in Wyoming. Uh, my my family was uh, from Wyoming. I grew up here, um, graduated from high school. I spent about 25 years outside of Wyoming uh, and then returned back when our children were getting to school age and mm-hmm. also to take advantage of some of the unique unique things that uh, Wyoming has to offer. Yeah, yeah. On many fronts. Yes. So where did you move from then? You, you left and then came back. Where did you come back from? Most recently, uh, San Francisco. Uh, had been my I started my career in New York and was uh, there for several years. I was overseas to Asia, based in Tokyo, back to New York, and then San Francisco uh, before returning back here. What what type of work were you doing in Tokyo? I was working in the investment banking group at J.P. Morgan. That uh, was uh, and had been uh, had an opportunity to do uh, uh, a stint abroad from from J.P. Morgan, based in New York. Um, had and I had some prior interest in Japan. I was a Japanese language and literature major as an undergrad, and had lived over there a couple of times as a an exchange student and um, uh, a summer internship with a Japanese company during college. So it was a chance to go back again, and and a really interesting opportunity. Yeah, I'd say so. Very interesting, and to have yeah. that background and kind of have the the interest in the language and culture, I'm sure, was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was great. So, I mean, going from investment banking to what you do now, is that a large leap to you or do you or do you feel like it's just kind of like different sides of the same coin? Well, there was actually uh, for most of my career, I was in investment management. So I started in investment banking, but transitioned to investment management about 20 years ago and was a started as an analyst and then was eventually a a portfolio manager on the um uh, global long short equity strategies most recently at citadel so that that is less of a leap to to what we're doing now um which is kind of both a combination of trust and estate uh work and um providing investment management services for clients as well 
yeah, quite close yeah. as far as the spheres of things go. Right. There's a there's a you know you mentioned sort of managing money for high net worth um, families, and you guys really have carved out a niche in in the digital uh, cryptographic space. I guess I should say it that way, and it's because it's not really cryptocurrencies only. I think is accurate. Right. So right. how did you guys get into that space and, and what is that space for anybody who's not real clear on it? Right. Right. Yeah. I I uh, would say that we were compelled into the space through both uh, our own um, intellectual interest in uh crypto assets and the underlying technology, distributed ledger technology, as well as Wyoming is really respond. The state of Wyoming is really responsible for um, uh, pulling us into the sector as well. In addition to my work uh, with Two Ocean Trust in the private sector, I'm also um, very fortunate to sit on the uh the committee within the Wyoming legislature the Wyoming blockchain select committee that has been responsible for a raft of legislation that's come out of uh come out of Wyoming um clarifying blockchain technology and uh and digital assets and so it was kind of kind of through that work as well that uh that we became increasingly uh focused on our business uh with uh with digital assets. Yeah, maybe just to help people get an idea of like why why would that framework be required? So for ex- just a just an easy example I guess for example, um if you're say a bank and you want to be able to lend money and maybe you're going to be lending money in some form of cryptocurrency or otherwise, and you want to secure your loan, uh, unless you have legislation that makes it clear what it is that you're receiving in how you're going to get that security on the thing that you're maybe lending or taking the security on, if it is a digital asset or crypto asset, you need legislation to, to clarify how it is that you get the lien on that property. So you're you're adequately secure to making that loan. So, you know, if it gets defaulted, you can hopefully make yourself whole. And that, believe it or not, is something that is not clear in all places, but it is much clearer in Wyoming. Yeah, that's right. You 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 hit on a probably the most important piece of legislation that's come out of Wyoming, which was Senate File 125. And Senate File 125 at the time did quite a trailblazing thing. We appended the Uniform Commercial Code of Wyoming to include three new pieces of property, if you will, uh, digital currencies, digital securities, and tokens. And it's because of that clarification of what these things are in law that you're able to uh, advance more legislation, create a pathway for regulation, and then most recently, the state of Wyoming has stood up a new court here, the Wyoming Chancery Court, and so beginning to build legal precedent around uh, uh, blockchain and, and, and crypto assets. And then that, I mean, that you talk about sort of the, the regulatory framework, that really plays right into your current organization because you guys are really trailblazers on the regulatory side, too. That's right. The Division of Banking here, here in Wyoming uh, has been um, a very forward-thinking and progressive regulator, bu- building on the work of the legislature to then create a framework for institutions such as ours to, in a, in a fully regulated and, and audited fashion, add digital assets to the uh, existing kind of traditional financial services that we've been providing for uh, for our clients. Yeah, and that includes holding them. And that is just something that is very difficult for um, a lot of organizations to do, just hold 
or as they say in the industry, custody those assets, you know, just being able to hold those assets on behalf of clients and manage those assets on behalf of clients is, I think that's really where you guys made the huge leap ahead of a lot of your competitors. That's right. And um, be, again, because of the legal and regulatory clarity that the state of Wyoming provides to us, and also a unique construct of the way that we're chartered in Wyoming as a, as a trust company in Wyoming, we're able to provide both trust services, you know, serve as a corporate trustee for, for Wyoming trusts, and we're able to serve uh, as a qualified custodian under state and federal law. So we can provide investment services as well. And it's because of the combination of those two things wrapped in this kind of clarity of Wyoming law that we will accept crypto assets into trusts that uh, uh, that that we're serving as trustee for. Um, that's a fairly unique situation that we're in. I'm not aware of any other regulated corporate trustee in the United States that will accept crypto directly into into trust today. Um, that will yeah. change in the future, I'm sure. But as of today, I believe we're the only one. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. I, at least not that I'm aware of. Uh, and I agree. I think that's it's inevitable. It's going to change in the future. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because you guys are, you know, as you're working with clients who might be uh, either wanting to custody with you or have you be trust of, of these sorts of assets. Is there a tension there? Because, you know, it's almost like going, it's almost like taking this very decentralized, antisocial is probably not the right word, but somewhat antisocial movement and then tagging it onto a very landed organization. So do you, do you guys feel some tension there? Yeah. Another great question. There, there is, there's, uh, there is somewhat of a, of an inherent conflict that exists between the original ethos of crypto assets, which is a self-sovereign asset to be your own bank in, in effect. And then this notion of applying trust law and unlocking the benefits that, that folks on your side of the business do every day with clients, which necessitates the grantor relinquishing control of the asset to a trustee, that sort of flies in the face of that ethos of a self-sovereign asset. So a big part of what we do uh, with with helping clients is get comfortable of uh, of giving up control of that asset to a qualified custodian and to a corporate trustee in order to unlock those benefits that come with traditional trust and estate planning. Yeah, and absolutely and and you do have to give up the control right if you're going to have a trustee the trustee technically has legal title to everything so they would have to have control but i think where maybe people wouldn't feel the the emotion of that is if you don't if you don't appreciate that with a digital asset like a cryptocurrency or non-fungible token or something on the blockchain the control is the thing the access right. the uh the the asset is the access or the access, right. the access itself is the asset. And if you lose the access, you literally lose the asset. You're, you're exactly right. It's a private key. So on most blockchains, that's a, a string of 32 digits or characters. And that's what we hold in custody. And, and that's what we that's our fiduciary obligation as a trustee is to ensure that that 32 character string is protected. And then the value that it unlocks is passed along to the grantor's rightful heirs as prescribed in the in the trust document uh but but it is it is the ultimate bearer instrument it control of that private key is necessary uh in order to uh fulfill our fiduciary obligation and if we can't 
If we can't control that, then how do we discharge our fiduciary obligation as a trustee? And that's why this unique combination of being both a trustee and a custodian is is uh, so important in, in in dealing with digital assets for for clients for grantors. Yeah, uh, it's got to be. I mean, it's a big risk for you too in in your business because if you're a fiduciary, you know your job is to take care of the asset, and you have an asset that if you have the key could be worth millions. And if you don't have the key, it's worth zero. That's right. That's it's not right. like uh, you lost your account number and you can just call somebody up. That's right. Yeah. You lose that key and the wealth is gone forever. Yeah. That's a, that's a strange little world. So how did you how did you guys get comfortable with that risk in order to step into it from a business perspective? Very carefully. Uh, and, and I just to start first by reflecting back on where our conversation started the 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 legal oversight and the regulatory oversight are a key piece to our being comfortable and then secondly it was just through the process of understanding the security that exists around the private key storage and in fact if i compare today the security that we have in place uh, through through our technology partners for private keys, and I contrast that to other assets that we're holding in custody or, or serving as trustee for, there is significantly, in my opinion, there is significantly more risk for traditional assets of hacking or uh, um, um, you know, phishing into an account and getting hold of somebody's assets. The uh, Just to sort of run you through one example, uh, in order to access private keys, we have a quorum of senior officers who multiple of whom need to go through a multi-step biometric authentication process. Uh, and only after that has happened and, and kind of very importantly as part of that, there are, there are no usernames, no passwords and on the other side, no humans involved. So it's all done by algorithm and all done through biometrics. Only after that's been satisfied, then are the are the private keys accessed and the way that they're accessed is completely in cold storage, meaning that um, the, the way it works is actually quite fascinating. So the instructions algorithmically come to a mechanical arm. That arm disconnects from the Internet and then connects to a special purpose piece of hardware for storing keys called a hardware security module or HSM. This is hardware that was developed by the NSA specifically for storing cryptographic information. So ARM connects to the HSM, pairs in the HSM the private key and the public key. The instructions on what needs to be done on the blockchain then come out to this ARM. It disconnects from the HSM, reconnects to the internet, and then transmit transmits the necessary information to the blockchain. At no point in that process was the private key exposed to the internet. Um, so, I mean, it's James Bond kind of stuff. It's, it's really fascinating crypto security. Uh, and as I said, when you contrast that to the process we go through to wire transfer money or or, or buy shares of stock for, for one of our clients. To, to me, that the, the latter is the much more uh, uh, attack-prone vector. Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. Uh, you, well, you know, like one of the big phishing scams, for example, is uh, they send out an email to everybody saying, you know, it looks like you're a, a vendor or something. You're like, I need this invoice paid, or so-and-so said we need this invoice paid, and here's the routing number, and just pay it. And then somebody not being very careful, they just punch in the routing number and account number and they just send send the money. Well, that's not even possible right. under the system that you're describing. Right, right. I, I mean, I, I am so convinced of this that I am quite certain that all traditional assets will ultimately be transacted on 
distributed ledger technology that it is it is far more secure um the headlines are that you know there have been these hacks and cryptocurrency was stolen or lost the reality is that the blockchains themselves have never been hacked it is somewhere in flight that the hack has occurred uh or someone's information has been compromised or private keys have been stolen even where the fbi has Recently, there have been some some headlines about the FBI recovering um, funds, crypto. That's not because the U.S. government somehow figured out how to guess a 32-digit <laughs> code or that they hacked into a blockchain. Uh, they were able to get the private keys, the private key information um, from those from those suspects, from those criminals, and then go onto the blockchain and and transfer that that value over to a government wallet right. uh, without the person knowing. But at right. no point was the blockchain compromised to date ever. Yeah, I mean, you could almost argue that the blockchain operated the way it was meant to operate, which is the person with the keys gets the access. Yeah, that's right. Um, so how uh, if you were if you were going to kind of come up with a list for you know things that you see your clients do as far as managing their crypto wallets or, you know, transferring moving moving wallets from or crypto assets from wallet A to wallet B, you know, if you had to come up with a list of like top three or four, like don't do these things that you've <laughs> learned from your observations, what would those be? Yeah, I'll answer that in two different ways, Brent, because there mm-hmm. there are sort of two different client types really that, that we that we face. The first client type is the person who has created their wealth through crypto and and they have substantial holdings in crypto but have not yet met with someone like you to think about generational planning and and trust and estate planning or unlocking some tax benefits um and in in those instances our our advice to them is uh let us introduce you to a trust and estate attorney and you should start taking care of these these generational planning um, uh, objectives. And uh, also, we appreciate the need or the desire for some self-sovereign asset, some, uh, you know, sort of jokingly, we, we talk about someone having a go bag. Uh, you know, where they've got their hardware wallet in the back uh-huh. ready to go if, if the world turns in a direction they don't like. But I, I think there is also a very sound argument for diversifying, even for those folks that want some some part of their wealth being completely self-sovereign. I think there's still a very good argument for also some part of that being part of uh, longer term generational planning and being kept with a qualified custodian, a, a regulated entity, um, a corporate trustee overseeing that that generational planning. So that, that's our advice for that first client type. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there are traditional high net worth uh, families who are looking at crypto assets for the very first time to be added to to their existing um, portfolio. And, and oftentimes they have great advisors and and trust and estate attorneys who have set them up with um, sophisticated uh, estate planning and tax planning. But they're now looking at this asset class for the first time. And what they expect is that it to look just like traditional assets, legal clarity, regulatory oversight. I can log in and see my balances online. Um, there's insurance coverage. I'm getting 1099s at the end of the year. And so that's really what we've been aiming to build and, and accomplish here as well, which is um, 
bringing these digital assets into uh, a, a user interface that looks and and is treated exactly like shares of of uh, Apple stock, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the you're probably right. The two different categories of clients in this space. I mean, it's almost although it's, this is not a direct. I don't think it's a perfect analogy, but it's almost like. Uh, you know, clients who have made their money because they held held or issued stock in one specific company. Maybe it was a startup and it went through an IPO and now they're sitting on these huge concentrations and they might be a little too beholden to that stock, like the person who's sitting on a lot of crypto assets that they've held for a long time. And that's where they made their money versus somebody who just sort of has stumbled into it through normal investment activities. Right, right. And do you, do you think so, that, sorry not to cut you off there, but um, do you think that the 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 process of doing the investment management is substantially different for the say uh, crypto native or, or sort of old hold, old like you know a few years of holding crypto <laughs> assets type client versus say the client who ha- traditionally had the the Exxon stock or the the GE stock that they just were yeah clinging on to forever yeah that's a good question I I actually I. I, I don't think I've thought about it this way before you've asked this question, but I, I, I think that it, it actually ends up being very similar advice. It's just that you're mm-hmm. coming from two opposite ends towards the same goal, which is to have a diversified portfolio of uncorrelated assets that will provide an opportunity for uh generational wealth uh, preservation and accumulation over time. And, and that, right. that, you know, ultimately that's what our clients are seeking. Right. Um, they're just coming from two very different <laughs> points on the spectrum. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, well, you, um, I know you, when last time you and I talked, you were, you were mentioning to me that you guys had done your own kind of internal studies about mixes of assets. Cause you're, you are traditional, asset managers and investment advisors. So, you know, kind of mixes of manage, uh, mixes of assets and, and portfolio profiles that would include cryptocurrencies or not in varying amounts. You know, can you maybe describe some of the things that you guys have been finding and really digging into? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, anyone that's over the age of 30 started in some sort of traditional finance. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you're right. We, we come from a traditional finance background. Um, but it, yeah, there was an interesting study uh, that we did. We looked at a traditional investment portfolio. And so as a proxy for a traditional investment portfolio, we took a 60% allocation to diversified equity and a 40% allocation to diversified fixed income. And we looked at that portfolio uh, across various look back periods, three years, five years, and 10 years. And then we added increments of uh, crypto, in this case we used Bitcoin, um, in 10 basis point increments, all the way up to a 10% allocation of, of Bitcoin, uh, with the balance going to the 60-40 split between equity and fixed income. And what we found was was quite interesting. Not surprisingly, the returns of that portfolio increased dramatically because crypto Bitcoin has outperformed equities and fixed income so significantly over three, five, and 10 years. But just to, one little bit of anecdote to, to gauge that, just a 5% allocation to Bitcoin 
over the past 10-year investment period would have increased uh, the compounded annual growth rate of that portfolio by 2x. So a 60-40 portfolio would have compounded about 10% over the last 10 years. Just a 5% allocation to Bitcoin, that same portfolio would have compounded about 20%. But the, but the more interesting thing, you know, it was not really a big surprise to us that the returns increased, but we know that Bitcoin and all crypto assets are incredibly volatile. And that volatility is, I think, what gives people pause when they're thinking about this as an asset for generational wealth. What became so interesting in our analysis to us was that a small allocation to Bitcoin actually didn't increase the volatility or the value at risk of the portfolio. In other words, the risk of the portfolio didn't increase as we added small increments to Bitcoin. And the reason is because, as a kind of a classic tenet of, of modern portfolio theory, the correlation between Bitcoin and traditional investment securities is actually quite low. And that comes as a surprise to a lot of people because it, when we have these moments of, of risk aversion and, and sell-off, you see all risk assets moving down. And there's no question that crypto assets are a risk asset. But it's the other 300 days out of the year where these assets move completely independent of one another, where the correlation breaks down. So as we look back across three, five, and 10 years, the correlation between Bitcoin and our hypothetical 60-40 portfolio was just 0.2 to 0.3, which is insignificant in terms of correlation. And what causes the uh, increase in risk-adjusted returns that I was describing before. So you get this massive boost in returns as Bitcoin and other crypto assets are experiencing this unprecedented adoption in the global economy and their values are going up and there's really not any risk being added to the portfolio to the extent that that position is 5% or less. And so risk adjusted returns or another measure that we like to use in, in, in asset management is sharp ratio increased dramatically uh, across this look back period. And so we, we actually have written a paper about that. We, we feel quite compelled to share this with folks because I think it, it is a rather profound, um, um, discovery, at least in, in for me, that this is a great asset for a diversified, uncorrelated portfolio that is usually kind of the core of this long-term generational wealth management or endowment style investing. Yeah, it's really interesting. And and I've heard in other places, although I think some of this was a little more speculative than the way that you're just describing that, an idea of like, well, yeah, maybe you just throw in, uh, you know, 5% of your investments in crypto and then it's not that much. So if you lose it, you know, it's only 5%, but it's not as, not as scientifically, um, researched as what you guys have looked at, which is, which is really interesting. But I think you're right that most people probably think of to pick on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is something that rises and falls primarily with the markets, which is not necessarily true. Although you do see certain days where they move in lockstep, but that's, it's not because they're really moving in lockstep. It's just sort of an anomaly. Yeah, you need to look at it over time. And, yeah. and you're right. But so, you know, there are moments in time where that correlation increases. And, uh, you know, when when we had the sell off, when when COVID was first experiencing its outbreak, when we've had this sell off here more recently, um, propagated by the Fed beginning to uh, drain liquidity and and then also the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict. Yes, those correlations do rise and, and you do see risk assets being sold across the board and crypto is part of that. But as I mentioned before, if you, if you have a 
a horizon that you know can expand beyond 30, 60, 90 days, the correlations are actually quite low. Uh, and there are periods of time where there's a negative correlation um, between the two assets. And so um, but we're, we're fortunate in that we're not we're not trading on a short term time horizon for our clients. We're looking at, you know, oftentimes multi-generational wealth. So we have a very long investment horizon and we have uh, an upward bias in our view towards the value of, of certain crypto assets over time. And with that, you know, we welcome uncorrelated volatility. That's a positive thing to have in a portfolio. Yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, definitely interesting that you guys or your team really took took the time to look at it because I'm sure it was some. I I imagine, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that it was something that you were thinking about or somebody on the team was thinking about and thinking we really ought to know this. Yeah, there's a way to know. We really ought to know. Yeah, we had it. We had a theory, and um, but it, but it actually ended up being um, surprisingly um, more pronounced than we expected. The mm-hmm. the improvement in the Risk-adjusted returns was more pronounced than than we expected. Yeah, yeah actually, for for very small positions, sort of one, two, kind of up to three percent, the measured risk of the portfolio actually goes down a little bit, and then it then it starts to bend up as the contribution of volatility from Bitcoin or from crypto assets more than offsets that lack of correlation, and kind of comes back to about even around four or five percent positions. Really interesting. Thank you. So I wanted to I wanted to ask you about one other thing. This is this is on a slightly different topic, but I, I'll bring it back, I promise. <laughs> and that is decentralized autonomous organizations and specifically uh, Wyoming has been a bit on the forefront of this again on a lot of these topics it has in allowing what it calls decentralized autonomous organization or DAO DAOs uh, LLCs you know a, an entity that is one of these enti- ent- uh, types of organizations Do you, can you for people who have no idea what I'm talking about can you explain that at least in broad strokes and then maybe we can talk a bit about what it might mean and I say that with a question mark at the end because I don't know yeah. if anybody knows right yeah, so a little known fact about Wyoming, we actually were the first state to develop the LLC. So LLC legislation originated in Wyoming. Delaware has done a much better job of getting the uh, the mind share of LLCs. <laughs> uh, but but um, what what we've done in Wyoming is to build on the LLC chassis uh, uh, with a new type of entity, uh, the DAO. And a DAO is... Uh, really dovetails into distributed ledger technology or blockchain technology, which is the decentralization of uh, processes, contracts, uh, agreements, and and now with DAOs, organizations that function in a decentralized fashion or without a central controlling entity. A DAO takes this notion of a of of a what what may be an easy place to start is a smart contract. So a, a smart co- contract is essentially an agreement between two people uh, who would otherwise have no reason to trust each other, who don't rely on an intermediary between the two of them to verify uh the transaction. And uh, the two the two parties can transact and the, the contract can settle based entirely on an algorithm on computer code. That's a smart contract. And it and it is going to be incredibly disruptive to our economy and to financial services in particular. The DAO sort of builds that to a next level, which is that you have an organization that is built on code or algorithm. So um, if you're 
a token holder, uh, it sort of becomes what a shareholder is of of a corporation, but with a clearer line to governance. So with, with an equity of a corporation, for example, you have the ability to vote and uh, to the extent that the board uh, has put forward a proposal that they'll allow shareholders to vote on or the CEO uh, thinks that something needs to be voted on, then great, you have control as an, uh, as an equity stakeholder. With the DAO, you have much more direct control. The governance of the organization is entirely in the hands of the token holders. Um, and so I like the way that you finished that question by saying, I don't know that anyone knows where this is ultimately going to end up, but the use cases are unfolding in an exponential fashion right now. And the number of filings that the Secretary of State here in Wyoming is is uh, receiving is is really encouraging, um, but I honestly I honestly don't know what shape or form these DAOs will ultimately take. But it's it is a technology that I believe uh, that I believe in, and as I said before, that I believe will completely disrupt the way that we currently transact with each other. Yeah, I I think it could, and I'll explain a couple of different ways that I think that, but one is, um, well, just to maybe flesh that out for anybody who's thinking, well, like, well, then why do you need an LLC? Well, the idea is, number one, you can form an entity that if it needs some sort of regulatory status, it has, you have an entity that could go through a regulatory process. So there is, there's a little bit of that on the back end of it. But what makes it different from a normal LLC, at least as far as I can understand these things, I'm not saying I'm the smartest person on any of these topics, is that in an ordinary LLC, you might form the entity and then the relationships and the management authority and everything is governed either by the, the statute or it is governed by what's called an operating agreement, or in some states it's called a limited liability company agreement. I think that's the term in Delaware. In in the case of a DAO, you could have a smart contract like you're talking about being the the document, although it's not physical, that governs these relationships. And, and then in that smart contract can have uh, those relationships, relationships, in essence, governed by algorithm rather than a legal document. So here's the, the, the one thing that comes up from time to time in these legal documents, be it an operating agreement or a trust agreement or otherwise, that people frequently ask me right now is, well, what if so-and-so doesn't do X, Y, Z? Then what? And the answer basically is you have to sue them. And then you have to convince the judge that they did the thing or they're not doing the thing. And then the judge has to make them do it. Well, if you have a, if you have an arrangement that's governed by algorithm, assuming it's a circumstance that is actually governed by the contract, which is maybe a bigger, broader question, then you don't go to court to enforce it. It's enforced algorithmically. Right. And people's behavior is enforced algorithmically. It's not enforced by, say, convincing a judge of what has happened. So that, I think, is part of the, the appeal. I mean, we have organizations where everybody gets a say. And we have organizations where everybody's sort of, uh, based on their participation, they benefit from whatever that organization is doing. Those already exist. They're called, uh, they're collectives. Okay. So we have these right. things, but they're just not popular. Um, but it's, you know, the DAO, I think, is somewhere in between. Where they're really interesting to me, when I was talking about the enforcement piece, is whether, I, I know it's starting as LLCs, but when that is going to then transition into, say, trusts where you have what is in essence a smart contract, although trust documents aren't exactly contracts, but it's an alg algorithmic uh, cryptographic type arrangement with the trust so that the beneficial interests are tracked 
cryptographically on a ledger, and the rules and the the authorities between the parties are then governed algorithmically through these what would be similar to a smart contract. And I think that is probably coming as well. Although I I agree with you completely. Yeah. No. I think I think that's a two very astute observations. And uh, you know, I a lot of a lot of folks that I talk to have a hard time getting their head around this idea of of a DAO. Uh, and, it, and it's why I, I, I like to start with kind of explaining what a smart contract is. And and, it, and, and we've all lived with smart contracts in our lives. If, if, if you think about one of the most kind of basic smart contracts that we've entered into our entire lives is a vending machine. Right. So there's this algorithm that if I put put in a slug of metal that has a certain diameter, you know, the if then statement is diameter is X and and weight is Y. And then um, I press one of these buttons, then vending machine gives me soda. Uh, that's an if then statement. And that is what a smart contract is. And that that because of distributed ledger technology. Well, first you needed the Internet. And now we have the Internet has propagated all over the world. And now you've built on top of, of Internet technology, distributed ledger technology, and this will allow this very simple concept of an if-then statement to be extended between parties who would otherwise not trust each other uh, and and not be able to transact without layers of intermediaries and, and inefficiencies. So it's a simple concept. Uh and then I, I really agree with your last point about I don't see any reason why wills and trusts couldn't exist on the blockchain and that there couldn't be self-executing trusts. Um, and I, I suspect that it will take a while for regulators and the legal profession to kind of catch up to the concept and ensure that every possible thing that could go wrong has been <laughs> anticipated. Uh, that's going to take time, certainly. But I think it will have a uh, also a wonderful knock-on effect that distributed ledger technology purports to have in our society, which is the democratization of trust and estate planning. I think it will make uh, the benefits that trust and estate planning bring to those who have the wherewithal to set it up. It can be brought to a, bro- a broader swath of socioeconomic um, folks within our society. Yeah, I, I agree. Because one of the and this is obviously this is a role that your group fills now, but it's a role that the the lower you get on that social economic scale, the harder it is to find. And that is you need a trustee who's competent to do and to understand the role of a trustee. Well, if those if that role is, in essence, played out algorithmically, then you don't necessarily need that person to fulfill the role. It can be That's fulfilled right. in a slightly different way. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's inevitable. It's hugely complicated, and I don't want to oversimplify how difficult right. it would be to create those arrangements. But That's why we have smart lawyers like you. Well, and frankly uh, – <laughs> Uh, frankly, that's why we have things like AI to try to build complex systems that maybe would take way too long for me to me right. or even a whole cadre of lawyers to come up with. Right. But, okay, I wanted to ask you about one other thing, or I wanted to throw one other thing at you because I when I when I think of these DAOs and particularly the, the like DAO LLCs, and I think about what you were just t- describing about the studies about crypto assets and things. One of the issues with crypto assets, of course, we're beginning to learn as 
information is doled out to us is that it's treated as property. So when you sell it, you know, you, you generate gains and you can have large gains built into these assets. And then it could make it difficult to diversify out of them, even if you're trying to diversify into other crypto assets. And where I could see these DAOs going is becoming, in essence, exchange funds for cryptocurrencies. And we do that now for publicly traded stock, for example, right. and it plays on some partnership tax rules. But I, as far as I'm aware, and I, that could be completely my ignorance and somebody's going to tell me I'm dumb and there is one, but <laughs> that probably doesn't exist right now in the same sort of fashion for cryptocurrencies, partly because they're not old enough and you have to hold these exchange funds for seven years before you can kind of diversify out. So that's a long time in cryptocurrency land. Right. You know, it's like almost to back to inception for some of these. So right, right. that's where I, I'm also seeing that these anyways, these Dow LLCs and also thinking, hmm, I wonder if people are right. thinking that's going to be in the future as well. Oh, that's an interesting idea. And I've I've heard the concept of, of sort of extending a, the exchange traded fund or pardon me, uh, the, the uh, exchange fund where you're you're maintaining your basis and not not triggering capital gains. I've heard that extended to crypto and I know some managers who who are um setting up funds with a similar strategy. I've not heard that idea applied to DAOs, which is that's a very interesting idea. Um and uh yeah, I mean it, it unfortunately somebody decided to call these things cryptocurrencies at the at, at the outset <laughs> and they're really not currency and they're not treated like currency certainly not by the IRS um they're assets and they're property and and they're taxed as such and so for a lot of our clients who especially that kind of first you, client type that I mentioned that that has created their wealth through crypto they have a very low basis and, and, and massive capital gains liability within their crypto positions. And really all that's available to them today um, to access that wealth without triggering that capital gain is to borrow against those assets. Um, that That's the only option today that I'm aware of. So the, the uh, Brent Nelson Dow is uh, I, I think there's a great use case for that. Patent pending. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, anyways, it's a, it's an interesting space. You, you and I could talk about this, uh, all afternoon long, but I think we'll leave it there. Joel, I really appreciate you doing this. If people are trying to reach you, which they should, if they have questions about this stuff, how do they do it? Uh, our website would be a great place to start, uh, twoocean.com and, uh, feel free to reach out to us. Our contact info is on the website. Okay. Cool. And we'll, we'll include the contact information in the show notes, too, for anybody looking for it. That'll be a handy place to find it. But, uh, Joel, as I say, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brent. Appreciate the great questions. Hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.